This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Stephen Schubert with you. It's great to have your company as we join our reporters exploring a big country. This week, we're headed to an Outback cattle station where they've made some big savings on repairs and maintenance. They're putting it down to having an all-female stock camp. We'll meet the grazier who's preserving a piece of history close to the hearts of her local community. She's restoring more than a century-old church that's hosted the district's weddings, funerals and baptisms. And we'll get an introduction to the sport of dog trialling that's getting a strong following even among non-farmers. But there's one essential, a good dog, and that can come at a big cost. I was under the impression you could get a good dog for a carton of beer, you know, and uh, she's, uh, all of a sudden we're paying $800 plus transport for this bloody pup, and yeah, so it was, you know, $1,200 dog landed and spent a bit of cash on him, so yeah, we, that's his name was Cash. We'll meet the owner of Cash the Dog, who's having some success in the sport of dog trialling. That's coming up. First today to a flower farmer who was hit hard by wet weather and flooding earlier this year. Now, with the help of her community, she's getting back on her feet. Jennifer Nichols has her story. In this raised bed here, I've got about 60 new tubers in there, 60 varieties, so I've only been wow. buying. Yeah, so I'm just buying like one of each variety at this the moment just to build up our collection. And we're going to be taking cuttings as well to increase our stock level. So a few of these new dahlias have started pushing through the ground. Ooh, exciting. So, yes, it's very happy to see those tiny little green sprouts. Doesn't look like much, but <laughs> it's such a sign of good things to come, yeah. These new green shoots in Erindor's rows of flower beds are a welcome sign of fresh blooms ahead after a tough time for her fledgling flower farm. Earlier this year, two floods and weeks upon weeks of rain smashed the farm hard, wiping out crops and destroying bulbs. Erin was heartbroken, but hard work, some new farm infrastructure and support from her community has her back in a good place. Feeling really good now. We've been working really, really hard, building some raised beds. We're looking at putting in a hoop house just to navigate future rain events, mitigating the risk a little bit more, especially for our really precious items like our dahlia collection, which I lost our entirety of. So, oh. yeah, as you can see, we've got some beautiful raised beds which have been built specifically for the dahlias. So, yeah, spending all my savings on dahlia tubes <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Not that I had much to start off with after the floods. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm revisiting Erin's Petalhead Farm and Florist in Gympie in southeast Queensland. We're standing among some very pretty snapdragons that were gifted to the farm after the floods. Yeah, for Australia, who are they supply little plugs, which are little baby seedlings. They heard about our massive losses and called me up one day and offered us all of these. I think it was over a thousand snapdragon seedlings donated to us. I think I almost cried when I when I got that phone call. I was in total disbelief, but it definitely saved our butts. I can tell you that much because if I didn't have those, I still wouldn't have had an income until a month ago. Probably helped to keep the business alive, to be honest. It looks like you've put in a heap more beds as well, yes, and you've got yes. different variety of flowers mm -hmm. growing now. I think coming into our second season as well, we're kind of getting the hang of what works here, what doesn't. We're just getting better and better at it. And what's been the challenge in getting the soil 
well to be all right after being smashed by so much water? We have been ordering huge amounts of compost and composting all of the rows. We've been fertilising like mad leading into spring. So everything's really growing super well. We've got beautiful, colourful yarrow here, which is really, really happy. Feverfew is just about to burst with flowers. We've got lots of stock, lots of ranunculus over there. And business has been booming by the looks of it. You're getting a lot of orders for your arrangements. Yeah, just this week alone has been absolutely exhausted. Yesterday I was on my feet arranging orders <laughs> for like six hours straight and then I had nothing left so we sold out by yesterday afternoon and it's just amazing the support we're still getting and I'm still just even getting better and better at my job I suppose so the arrangements are getting better and better as well. You look at a lot of larger scale farmers and they're saying you have to do it really big to be successful but you are a really niche farm supported by your local community. Yeah I mean I think it depends what your business plan is I suppose we're like a boutique farmer florist setup so we aim to be completely self-sustainable which is why we grow such a variety of plant types flower types foliage and it, it's working and a lot of businesses subscribing yeah so we do a subscription service where weekly or fortnightly I arrange some flowers to suit a budget and deliver it to your door lots of people getting on board with that as well it's really nice for us because it's definite income I suppose <laughs> and you can kind of rest easy knowing you've got that business in the pipeline zinnias over there yeah, so we've got, um, I'll show you down this way a little bit more. Yeah, we've got some zinnias in the ground already, but lots in the greenhouse. Got a little trial patch of my Icelandic poppies, which are my favourite. Oh, I love them. Yeah. There's just a few in that vase yeah. over there. <laughs> They're for a client later. I'm just getting them to open up a bit. How much was the outpouring of love from the community a part to play in you deciding to stay in business? Yeah, well, I have a lot of really wonderful repeat clients in Gympie. So I didn't want to let them down. And there was a lot of love and support from the Gympie community, as always. Um, so... I think it would have been really disappointing for everybody had I just thrown a tantrum and thrown the towel in at the same time. <laughs> Let's not make light of it though. Yeah. It was all of your money yeah. and that was a very, very stressful time. Yeah, it was pretty dark times for a few months, definitely. It was very depressing, I'm not going to lie. And I had to come here every day to keep getting it going. It was really hard to look at. It was hard to come to work, that's for sure. And there's your mum. Gosh, she's a trooper. <laughs> yes, mum is definitely a trooper. <laughs> The mud warrior. <laughs> Julie Dora, I was just saying to your daughter Erin that last time I came, it was all action stations and you were madly trying to get dahlia bulbs out of the ground and salvage what you could from the floods. How do you feel now that spring has sprung and things are looking good again? Oh yeah, way, way better. We can actually see a result now, which is good. Did it take a lot of resilience from both of you to make this happen? Yes, yes, some days I think Erin found it hard to get out of beds to face it. We pushed ourselves a lot. What kept you going? Um, just believing that we can do it again and um, not wanting to fail, basically. Coffee and, and red wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of, lots of red wine. Coffee <laughs> in the morning and red wine at night, yeah. Not the other way around. <laughs> Trying to keep a sense of humour most of the time, yeah. but yeah. When Andrew Denson came home, opened the door and saw a new puppy, he was shocked. And that was before he found out his wife had paid over $1,000 for him. Yeah, well, I was under the impression you could get a good dog for a carton of beer, you know. No, she's, 
all of a sudden we're paying eight hundred dollars plus transport for this bloody pup and yeah so it was you know twelve hundred dollar dog landed and spent a bit of cash on him so yeah we, that's his name was cash but as it turned out cash was worth the big bucks andrew noticed he had a knack for mustering and he and cash now travel the nation competing in working dog trials in the hopes of becoming australia's top dog but mr jansen said cash's transformation from pup to professional was not instantaneous. It's a two-year process. Well, that dog's only just two-year-old, and I've had him since eight-week eight-week-old pup. And uh, you know, just time and uh, a lot of patience spent with him. But you know, we got sheep. I started him on sheep at you know 12, 13 weeks old, and they run around chasing the sheep. And it's just a simple good dog on the head, and they love. They just get addicted to the work, you know. And um, once they're addicted, you can kind of put a little bit of command over the instinct and sort of balance it out where you can work together and. Yeah, end up with the result where you can come and be competitive with them on the weekend. G'day, I'm Pat Heaney. I'm chatting with Andrew Jansen, who oversaw the recent Queensland State Championships in Comet in the state's central highlands. The competition fielded a record number of entries and drew competitors from across the state. He says the sport has taken off in regional areas and he puts it down to its affordability and family-friendly atmosphere. It's a growing sport and there's a lot of young people getting involved in it too now, which, which is healthy and, uh, you know, just shows here there's 160 dogs in the open and 150 in the novice and it's definitely, you know, the numbers speak for itself. It's just a growing industry for sure, you know. Queensland Working Dog Trial Association Vice President Paul Rowe agrees. Well, I've been trialling for 20 years and um, had some success. I uh, won the Open Dog of Queensland 14 times and, and the Open Dog of Australia 6 it started off with a necessity for the dogs for working, you know what I mean, they're uh, a tool in my profession, working cattle, and, and this virtually is just an extension to that, that I get to have a bit of fun with them on the weekends as well, you know. Like most of them have been working dogs and then come here for a bit of fun, but there are people that are cold miners and, and, uh, and then don't have a, uh, a job in the bush, and then they've picked this sport because it's nice and cheap, and you know what I mean, it brings a lot of satisfaction. They train their own dog and come here and play with them on the weekend. But what is dog trialling? The sport mimics cattle mustering. While using only whistles and verbal commands, handlers must use their dogs to move three cattle through a series of obstacles. Mr Rowe has judged dog trials for many years. It's a six minute course. Uh, we start off with 100 points. We, um, we've got four obstacles. We've got to get the hold, the gate, the race and the put away. They all, all the obstacle points add up to 30 points and 70 working points, which means the dog can't tail turn, bite too much, doesn't bark. All these things are points off to the judge's discretion. As I said, and they've got six minutes to do the course. Competitor Jamie Sturrock travelled over five hours from Jalaka on Queensland's Western Downs to compete in the state championships. He says dog trialling is unique, as training up your dogs can mean results both in the ring and in the paddock. Uh, so I guess it started with practical work, so I manage a cattle operation for a living, and uh, I guess, you know, the dog, you get bitten by the dog bug, and I guess the better your dogs get, the more you're, you know, keen to improve, and catalogue trolling is a, it's a really good work-related hobby that, you know, the better your dogs can go for, for work and for this, it's sort of rewarding through the weekend, on the weekend, so. Mr Sturrock says the industry has transformed since he joined, with many more young people trying their hand at trialling. When I first started, it was probably considered a little bit more of an older person's sport, a lot of, lot of semi-retired people and things like that. Mr Jansen said the accessibility and social side of dog trialling 
mean it's the perfect excuse to have a bit of fun on the weekend. It's good for the soul and the mind, isn't it? Just to get out and just forget about work for a weekend and just come and enjoy yourself. It's definitely a social event, you know, that's for sure. There's always a cold beer lying around. I think there's definitely room for growth, that's for sure, but it's going to continue to grow and there's more and more committees like shows are popping up, you know, it's, it's the number of events is, is what's growing. So that's a good thing, you know, you can get down the road and do it. There's a bit of a circuit, so to speak. You can, some people, you know, we chase points, we try and go for a dog of the year and open dog, novice dog, train championships and all that, you know, so there's, they all accumulate points, so, and then that's what, that's what helps grow, you know. And though he and Cash are yet to win any dog of the year titles, he says they've certainly got their eyes on the prize. So it's on the radar, but it's a, it's a long road yet. Maybe a win would be real good. We'll, you've got to be in it to win it, I guess. Andrew Jansen, who, along with his dog Cash, competed at the recent Queensland State Championships for dog trialling. That story from Pat Heaney. And you can see some photos and video from that event. Just head to the ABC RN homepage and look for A Big Country. I'm Stephen Schubert with you on RN. Still to come, a new life for an old country church, and we'll visit a cattle station where the female crew outnumber males, and it's bringing some unexpected benefits. It's Monday afternoon on Umbiara Station, and owner Angus McKay is sitting quietly at the head of his table. He's chewing through a healthy lunch of fresh quiche and salad, oblivious to the bubbly chatter of his crew debriefing on their weekend just past. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sit there at the dinner table surrounded by women. I've got two daughters and 35 girls working for me. It's sort of... <laughs> it's different. Uh, smoke our conversations are a lot more subtle than they used to be, so... <laughs> Nicer. Yeah. I'm sure how to describe that, wouldn't <laughs> He's a third-generation pastoralist and grew up on the land he now runs with his wife, Kimberly. When I first come out 16 years ago, it was an all-male um, workplace in that time, so I was the only female would have a whole table full of males, so more girls are applying for the job, so, um, yeah, there's definitely been a lot more women applying for these positions than males, so... Early this year we advertised, I think we had 17 or 19 females and one male apply for a station hand job. Mm. So overwhelmingly female-dominated yeah. applications. G'day, I'm Hugo Ricard-Bell. I'm chatting with Angus and Kimberly McKay here on Umbiara Station, about 300 kilometres south of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. <laughs> Angus puts the increase in females applying for station jobs down to a factor that might surprise you. Well, I think it's social media. I think now, you know, you get a couple of girls out in the camp here, last five, six years, they're putting it on social media. There's other kids down south see that, they think, oh, if they can do it, I can do it, mate. She yeah. looks like me. I could see myself on a horse or a motorbike in the Territory. Mm. I think it's given them the confidence to actually come up here and have a go. For Angus and Kimberley, they've found this a welcome change. Such a good crew, everyone gets along. It's been a really good year staff-wise. The last few years have been pretty good. We've been lucky with people hanging around for a few years. And yeah. Just to, I feel like we've got a good culture, yeah. workplace culture at the moment, So, yeah. which is a lot to do probably because of the girls we've got working with us. Everyone's got a bit of pride about what they do. They're proud of what they do. They enjoy it. It's just not just a job for these guys. This is a lifestyle they love. You know. I think we find with the females they're quite flexible. You know, they don't just help out with the cattle work and the station work. They're flexible enough to come in and help with the children and help with the meals and help in the garden. So everyone 
does every job these days. A station hand's not just a station hand. She's a flexible person that can do everything on the station that we do. So. And after digging amongst the books, Kimberley's found a pretty decent silver lining. Oh, I was just seeing a bit of We've noticed that um, comparing our figures from one year to the next, from having an all-male crew to a female crew, that our repairs and maintenance has gone down $24,000 a year by having an all-female so. <laughs> um, were you surprised, Angus, when Kimberly told you those figures? Yeah, initially, but when I thought about it, it makes sense. So you, we put girls on brand new motorbikes at the start of the season, end of the year, the bike's still good. It hasn't been carved across the flat a dozen times, so I guess it's their own self-preservation <laughs> sort of helps them look after gear. <laughs> no! <laughs> I'm Kelly Jensen, and this ad came up. I just give it a go and see what happens. And three days later, I was in the bus on my way to Colgara. Now, in case you're wondering, Kelly Jansen is from the Netherlands, hence the accent. And that bus trip was four years ago. Since then, she's had a few promotions and is now the leading hand of Umbiara Station. I'm pretty much Gus's right hand. So he tells me what needs to be done and I'll just do it and I'll step up whenever he's not around or when Kim and Gus are both off the station, I'll step up and lead everyone else. Would you have believed you were going to do that? You said four years ago you've been here? Well, funny story. Um, when I first started here, I started off as nanny. So I did not see myself in this position at all. And I did not know I would like it as much as I do right now. And if Kelly is Angus's right hand, Sarah Sari, a 20-year-old ringer who came up from Ballarat, is Kelly's. When I first started, there wasn't a whole lot I knew. Like, I'm even now, I'm still pretty new to this, but what I've always loved is just learning something different every single day. Like, there's always something different going on. There's always something I haven't done yet before, whether it's like looking after the grader or changing truck tyres or fixing leaks in pipes. Like there's so many different things that I'd never done before that I got to learn. So I, I think I love that most. And obviously working with cattle. It's impossible to describe that to yeah. people that have not experienced it. Especially coming it's from the Netherlands, there's no such a thing as a big property like this. Like on Biera is like a quarter of the Netherlands. What are you going to look back on? These girls, probably. Yeah. The, I've the just cruise. had an absolute ball with these guys here. They're like my family. And I think that's probably what I'll remember the most. And all the different things that I've learned. Like, I would never imagine myself being on a loader till I started doing loader work two years ago. And I only recently started to learn to work the grader. And before I got here, I didn't even know what a grader was. We have bitchmen all through the Netherlands, <laughs> all through Europe. <laughs> I love the shape of it. I love that it's really honest, quite a plain little building, but it's a lovely shape and proportion. This more than a century old building, a former uniting church, may be plain, but for Queensland grazier Claire McTaggart, it has a certain charm. 
And for her local community, it's a connection to important moments from the past. It's interesting, a few people said to me already, oh, you know, I've been to, you know, three weddings and a funeral there. And, you know, these, these lovely stories about, you know, that people have actually got a connection with the building. So I, I love that. I love the stories and I'm excited to breathe new life into the building again with the help of the builders. And yeah, everyone that's been working on it with us, it's really exciting. Hi, I'm Jasmine Hines. I'm visiting Claire McTaggart on her family's grazing property near Jeringa in central Queensland, where she's restoring this 115-year-old church. After a nail-biting journey on the back of a truck, the building is being brought to life, ready for its next chapter on this cattle station. Claire is relishing her role preserving this piece of history. Her own children were baptised in a local Anglican church, but that 110-year-old building was blown off its stumps and destroyed in a storm. It was a beautiful weatherboard as well. It was a little bit more ornate than this one. I guess in later years I thought, oh, you know, it's such a shame to lose these old buildings in town. You know, there's so many, there's a little church like this in most regional towns that's, you know, either being used or not. And I love heritage and preserving old buildings. So that was where my interest began. I think I reached out to the church quite a few years ago and they were really helpful and and they were interested in seeing it go to someone that had a genuine interest in caring for it and restoring it to its original condition. So that was a lovely process. They were um, very helpful. That process took a little time because it's not just you know decision that happens in Rockhampton. It has to go to other sectors within the church. So, but they were wonderful to work with. And then it took a little while to to actually change hands. And then another wait, I guess, probably in part with COVID and so forth. And getting the church to its new home was no easy task. I went down to watch it cross the river, and it was really you know had my heart in my mouth, thinking you know I hope it makes it. She trucked the church along a dirt road to her property, passing through a steep river crossing. It's about 45 k's north of Jeringa on the Apis Creek Road and it's all dirt. About halfway out there's the Mackenzie River crossing at Foley Vale and it's the low causeway bridge which is basically in the bottom of the river. So it's quite steep in and out and then there's, there's a second creek coming out of it as well and kind of I liken it to an expectant mother and it's, you know, birthing day or whatever, you know, it's um, it's the day and yeah, I definitely felt a little emotional about it, hoping it would make it here in one piece. As you can see, there's rods that actually help hold the structure together and, you know, it's 120 years old. Some of these boards, you know, when we lifted the carpet, that was a really exciting day. You know, there's a few of us in here and we, you know, start up one end and yeah, you just weren't sure what was going to be underneath and then... Um, we found some of the boards run the whole length of the room. Just think, gosh, you know, what's the history of that piece of wood? Where did it come from? It's local timber. It's a credit to the people that came before us. For the restoration project, Claire McTaggart has brought in help. Builder Cameron McDool is working on repairing the old timber. Uh, well, the main thing is when you pull the walls, wall linings, obviously what's behind there. So we had a bit of termite damage to repair in this one. Um, replacing all the old timber windows and sills, um, but it's been pretty good. It's all timber cladding, all timber frame, timber cladding, all timber lining, so we've got all the nice original uh, moulded tongue and groove. So yeah, we're leaving all that, we've replaced some that's been termite damaged, uh, putting all original large timber mouldings around all the windows, replaced some sections of floor where there was an old stage. So I guess it's all timber, whereas the new builds you'll have either lightweight claddings of fibro and that sort of thing. 
or brick, whereas uh, this is just all original like timber carpentry work, I guess, which is yeah, what we enjoy. Once the building work is complete, Claire hopes to share this piece of restored history with others. We will use it, set it up as a self-contained dwelling so visitors can stay here or if any of the children are home working on the property, they can live here. Maybe the odd workshop. I'd love to be able to share it with people down the track. I did think about leaving this one on site. That was probably my preference is, you know, to use it somehow in Jeringa um, because I really think it's part of the town's history. But I'm happy that it's still in the district. So this building means so much to a lot of people in Jeringa and just hope we can, you know, hope they feel comfortable coming and visiting it and seeing what we've done to it. I'm really mindful that it, it's, you know, there's a long history with this place and we've got to look after it and respect it and allow people to see it. Claire McTaggart, who's working to restore a 115-year-old church that she's relocated to her grazing property in central Queensland. She spoke to reporter Jasmine Hines. You can see some more on that story, including before and after photos, and some footage of the church on the back of a truck on its way to its new home. And before that, Hugo Rickard-Bell brought us the story of Umbiara Station in the Northern Territory, where they're hiring more women and saving money on maintenance. And there's more on that one online too, at abc.net.au slash rn. Just look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.